0: Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who is merciful. Truly, God, what we have sung is true. Our sins are many. And we come to you, Lord, today with hands open, asking that you would fill us again by your Spirit. Father, we come to you pleading but in the reality of our sin, that you would overwhelm us with your grace and your mercy once again here today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonas. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel Church, and I just consider it a privilege and an honor to get to speak to you today from God's Word. Today we will conclude a five-part series from the book of Jonah. We began in chapter 1, verse 1, and now we're going to go all the way uh, to Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11. And I'm excited that we've had this opportunity to dig into the text verse by verse and see where God has been teaching us things. We have ushers who are coming down the aisle. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, the Bible today, I would encourage you to take one. um, And... If you don't own a copy or you need an extra, please receive it as a gift from Bethel Church. We love giving out God's word because we know that through it we're pointed to the person and work of Jesus. Well, I'd like to catch you up a little bit on the story of Jonah. It's a simple story, and it's a story that in its simplicity is profound, it teaches us many things. In chapter 1, God chose Jonah to deliver a message of judgment to a wicked nation and to a wicked city called Nineveh. Jonah, son of Amittai, who is mentioned in 2 Kings 14, likely lived during the 8th century BC. And the Ninevites, as you've heard us talk about, were some of the most wicked people of the day. They were the enemy, the national enemy of the people of God, who we know as Israel. And art from that era depicts some of the cruel realities. And and as you've heard Pastor Andy and others share, it's not safe for this audience for us to talk about in detail what they did to their enemies. They were a warring people. And instead of obeying God and heading to the east, Jonah went directly west. And in chapter 1, The text tells us he went down to Joppa and down into the boat, and in the boat, he began to take a nap. Then the text says that God sent a storm. And what we realize is that Jonah would rather die than to go to Nineveh. He offers himself to the sailors, these pagan sailors, as a sacrifice, and he's thrown over the boat. The waters become like glass, and pagan sailors are worshiping the holy God by the end of chapter 1. Chapter two, Jonah cries out in his distress. He's drowning and he cried out to God. And just as God sent a storm, God sent a big fish to rescue Jonah. And three days later, he caused that fish to, and Jonah came out. And when you read it in the Hebrew, it actually kind of sounds like that. And he came out. In chapter three, Jonah delivers one of the shortest messages recorded It was eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah made no effort to explain the character of God or to explain the opportunity for the people to repent. No thought seems to be given about who the God of Jonah is and what he's really about. Jonah simply announces the judgment of God and he conveniently leaves out any part about repentance. But as you watch in the text, page 796, for those of you who just received a Bible, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, the king of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, and even the animals participated in a long-shot prayer of repentance. In verse 10, we read that God saw the turning of their hearts, and he relented in his judgment. God's kindness is on full display in Jonah chapter 3. Truly, he is the hero of this story. Well, chapter four offers even more perspective on Jonah's heart condition. It's a hard chapter. I was listening to Pastor Tim Mackey talk about this and he collects Jonah children's books and he recounts how two thirds of the Jonah children's books he's found don't even include chapter four. We don't know what to do with it. If you're a little kid, I mean, the the ironies in chapter 4. This is a challenging chapter. But now that you're up to speed, I want you to look with me into chapter 4 and to see why it can be such a challenge. Because one of the first things we're going to notice is that Jonah is profoundly displeased with God. And I want to alert you to this reality and invite you to read and to listen to the emotion of the text. Now, Jonah is not always the easiest book to find in the Bible. So don't be embarrassed if you have to look in your index or pull it up on your phone. It's on page 796, once again, for those who picked up a Bible. Jonah chapter four, verses one to four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "'Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home?' That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You are slow to anger and you are abounding in love. You're a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? I have to confess, as I read the book of Jonah, the more I turn the elements of this story over in my mind, the more ridiculous this guy seems to me. As a prophet of God, Jonah has just experienced the most profound numerical success that any of us could ever ask for. God sends him to send a message, and 120,000 people, just a few days later, have turned to God. One of the greatest cities of his day. Jonah, the evangelist, experiences success and now he's angry at God. Their national enemy, this Nineveh, 120,000 spiritually confused people acting just like you would expect them to act if they have no idea about their Creator God and His profound grace. And yet, when confronted with just even the minimum amount, Of the truth of God, they cried out for help. Chapter 4, verse 1, to Jonah what God had done was wrong. The translators could have easily just translated it like this, it was wrong to Jonah as a great wrong. He was angry. What God had done was disgusting to him. He wanted nothing to do with anything that might result in the benefit to the Assyrians. It is clear he was exceedingly displeased with God. Douglas Stewart summarizes this section this way. He says, the narrator carefully tells the story according to his inspired purpose, which is to arouse in the audience to disassociate itself from Jonah's narrow nationalism. Though Jonah hardly comes across as a hero anywhere in this book, he appears especially selfish, petty, temperamental, and even downright foolish in chapter 4. And I think that's why that chapter is left out in some of our kids' books. As God is the hero of chapter 3, Jonah becomes the anti-hero of chapter 4. Now it's a good time for us to remind ourselves that the people of God in this time lived under the painful subjugation of powers like the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire. Lest we too quickly harp on Jonah as someone I could never be like or you could never be like, I acknowledge a bit of sympathy for him because the people of God have experienced enormous misery at the hands of these evil people. So Jonah 4 It's a difficult text. I confess to you that as an American, in 2021, it can be hard for me to relate to the people of Israel in the time of Jonah. And yet, for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, this is their reality. They live under the heavy hand of power wielded in wickedness. And honestly, as I read this passage and I I think about the reality of who these Ninevites were, I appreciate how Pastor Andy mentioned that they're a lot like the Nazis and and Jonah would be like a Jewish man sent to, to speak justice and repentance and hope and faith to a Nazi military. It's not a far stretch in 2021 for us to see that ISIS fills the role of the Ninevites in our story. But I also know that by speaking of them as people who are distant and over there somewhere in past or in geography, makes it easier for us to dislike them. It makes it easier for our hatred for them to grow. And so I wanna invite you if you're willing to follow along. You might might use that study guide that's offered to you online and, and here in the bulletin. I would encourage you to take a note of who or what comes to mind, and and maybe it's not safe for you to write it down, but at least take a mental note. Is there a group of people in our world today that you find exceedingly frustrating? I mean, the last two years have revealed some tremendous cultural stresses and stress fractures. So I wanna imagine with you that possibly somewhere, in some place in our world today, there's a group of people that that when you see them on the news, your blood pressure goes up a little bit. If you see their fan base wearing their t-shirt, you grind your teeth a little bit when you see them. And now before you get completely sidetracked down there, I just wanted to give you a a taste of what Jonah might have been feeling in those moments. Maybe even a little closer to home. Is there a person in your life that you really don't like? I mean, we're in a church, so we're probably not going to use the word hate too quickly. I could never hate somebody. But there might be somebody in my life that's exceedingly annoying and given every opportunity, I'm going to avoid them. Maybe that's just me. Now that you've got that group or that person or that emotion in your head, maybe you can relate a little bit better to Jonah. Of all the people, God, the Ninevites, you know that they're the other. They're an enemy of our state. No Israelite patriot would ever want to be caught doing anything that results in the benefit of those people, God. He's angry. Notice the language that God used or that Jonah used in speaking to God. He uses the very words of God against him. In Exodus chapter 34, when the Lord revealed himself to Moses, he says this about himself. He says, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness." It gets repeated in Numbers 14. "The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression." But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. And so too in Psalm 86 and Joel 2. Jonah rants against God, throwing God's character right back into his face. And God responds with a question. Is it right for you to be angry? Now, you and I have the benefit of the whole story, but if you place yourself there for just a moment with fresh ears and you hear these words, is it right for you to be angry? You know, if I'm Jonah, I'd be like, yeah, it's right. God gave us anger as a gift. It teaches us about injustice and, and we're angry because we believe that there is something right. So when something wrong happens and we're angry, sometimes that can be a gift to us. But sometimes, as we're gonna see in Jonah 4, anger can be poison too. And as Andy and Lori mentioned, there's an entire booklet of, of groups here that help us process things like anger that's misplaced. Jonah was angry. The justice of God was not being meted out on his timeline. Oh, and by the way, remember Numbers 14? Jonah just left all that out when he preached to Nineveh. He didn't want them to know about that. And what does Jonah do? Let's see in chapter 4, verses 5. Here, I'll summarize it for you. He gives God the silent treatment. Like an angered spouse, or maybe I might have been when I was a teenager. Talk to the hand. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city there he made himself a shelter he sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and he made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort and Jonah was very happy about that plant But at dawn the next day God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered and when the sun rose God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint he wanted to die And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern over the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? The end. What do we do with chapter 4? God asks Jonah a question. Jonah, are you right to be angry? And Jonah says, I'm going to go sit over there. Now, I know that I'm a nerd and I embrace my nerdiness and I want to share and offer to you a gift that comes from being a nerd. I mean it in the kindest way. There's a German word that I learned this last year called schadenfreude. Now some of you in the, the Reddit world and other places, you know this word. It's gotten a lot of attention the last couple of years. It's a German word that combines two words. Schaden, which means harm, and Freude, which means joy. Schadenfreude. It's a word to describe finding joy in someone else's misfortune. Jonah's contempt for Nineveh leads him to set up camp and wait for their demise. Schadenfreude, exhibit A, Jonah, east of the city. He can't wait for God to destroy them. And just as God sent a storm and a fish, so God sent a leafy plant. And this made Jonah very happy. Do you see the roller coaster he's on? I'm exceedingly angry. I would rather be dead. But I'm going to go set up camp. Oh, God, thank you for the plant. Happy, angry, happy, angry. Pastor Tim Mackey describes this experience as as like shopping at the, the grocery aisle with a toddler. You laugh because you know this experience. The kid's doing okay, you've made it to the end and you're about to check out, and now I cannot live without that package of Starburst, mom or dad. (laughs) And the emotions royal. (laughs) And somehow they find themselves pouting at the end. Unless, of course, you gave in. Just as God sent the storm, the fish, and a plant, now God sends the provision of a worm. It's the same word used in chapter 2 of sending the fish to rescue. This worm is going to rescue Jonah by doing surgery on his heart, opening him up to reveal this terrible heart condition through the use of his circumstances. And once again, we see in verses 8 and 9 that Jonah would rather be dead than to see Nineveh benefit from his grace. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 121. It begins with, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He does not slumber or sleep. He who watches over Israel will not rest. And I forget the rest. But in verse six, the Bible tells us that the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. And I wonder if Jonah was leaning on that verse when God sent a scorching wind. He wanted to wake up Jonah. Verse 10, the Lord said, "'You had compassion on the plant "'for which you did not work "'and which you did not cause to grow. "'And this plant came up overnight, "'and it perished overnight. "'In 24 hours, Jonah, "'your heart has fallen in love with a plant. "'And now that the plant is dead, you weep for it.'" That's the language. like, oh God, my plant. I hope you're smiling when you hear this. That's the goal of the writer. Like Jonah. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand as well as many animals? Don't get stuck on whether they know their left or the right, it's a figure of speech to say, these people are spiritually confused, Jonah. One of the greatest cities of our day, Yes, your nation's enemy state. Yes, they are wicked. Yes, it does seem wrong, doesn't it? Or does it? God's threat to destroy Nineveh earlier in the book, reveals and demonstrates that there's no excuse for the evil they've done. He is displaying profound sympathy and understanding here in this figure of speech. They have no clue what their problem is or what to do about it. They're worshiping all sorts of gods, and God sends his messengers. Oh, and by the way, Jonah, do you not even care about their animals? See, I think that's why that's not in the kids' books. What do you do with a chapter at the end when the last word is, and their animals? It leads me to ask myself, when was the last time I, I cried over something? And it's not hard lately. I see some of you, you've been at the funerals we've shared the last month or two. We've, we've buried a lot of people, friends, lately. And the tears come easy. When was the last time the compassion of your heart was rendered in such a way that the tears fell? Jonah wants you to consider that. John Calvin describes Jonah's perspective here as inhumane. He treats them as such and other that they're not even worthy of the conversation. And I think you saw it, but just in case you didn't, a plant with no investment, no effort, it only lived for 24 hours, Jonah, you are weeping over a plant versus a people an important city, an enormous population, spiritually confused. When I heard Jonah 4.11, it reminded me of similar words from Luke chapter 23. They'll sound familiar to you. Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. I commend to you, if you enjoy reading Jonah, this book by Timothy Keller. It's called The Prodigal Prophet. In the book he says this, on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And Jesus is saying, Father, they are torturing and killing me, they're denying and betraying me, but none of them, not even the Pharisees, really comprehend what they are doing. Keller continues, we can only look in wonder on such a heart. He does not say they are not guilty of wrongdoing. They are. That is why they needed forgiveness. Yet Jesus is also remembering that they are confused, somewhat clueless, and not really able to recognize the horror of what they are doing. And here, friends, is a perfect heart, perfect and generous love, not excusing and not harshly condemning. He is the weeping God of Jonah 4 in human form. And so this brings me to another consideration. Jonah chapter 4 ends with a question mark. It leads me to ask the question, what is the rest of this story? God sent a prophet to speak goodness to those who are far from God, and the prophet rebelled. Facing certain death, pagan sailors worship God, and they throw the prophet overboard. God sends a fish to rescue his disobedient messenger. The most hated, wicked, powerful nation on the known earth turns to God in a moment of repentance. God's prophet turns angry and resentful at the kindness and mercy of God towards his enemy, and then the book ends— Wow. Though Jonah was principled, sincere, dedicated, and even at times courageous, he models for us where our hearts can lead us when we're not properly oriented towards the grace and mercy of God. As much as I would like to not be like Jonah, when I'm honest, I slip into the same struggles and sins. Having heard the word of God and knowing that which was right to do, I've turned the other way. During a time of great need, I've cried out for rescue, but it wasn't really all of me, I just wanted to be rescued. (laughs) Maybe you can relate. When given opportunity to share the good news of others, have you ever, especially with somebody you don't like, left some of those parts out? I've been there. When experiencing the pleasures of God's grace, we settle for temporary at the expense of the eternal. We're so thankful for the plant and miss out on the tremendous story of the mercy of God. When confronted with our anger, we argue with God instead of growing in grace. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Have you ever resented the thought that God's grace might be poured out on somebody you really don't like? Have you ever taken delight in the misfortunes of someone? Schadenfreude? Have you ever prayed against your enemies instead of for them? You see, when I read Jonah, I find myself so frustrated at his disobedience and this ridiculous hate for Nineveh. How could he be so full of himself? With his love for Israel and his hate for Nineveh, how could he hold on to his own self-righteousness for so long in light of his own pattern of disobedience? And how could he even for a minute justify his anger towards God for how God is treating his enemy? Can't he see this? And as I think those thoughts, I begin to see the speck in Jonah's eye that makes me aware of the log in my own. Friends, you and I know the rest of the story, and the story of Jonah points us to the story of Jesus, because Jesus is the greater Jonah. He was a faithful messenger who brought about salvation for all who would believe. As Jonah was rescued from the depths of a big fish, how much more was Jesus rescued From the depths of death, and how much more are we rescued and brought in to a new life based on the resurrection power of Jesus? The God who wept over the spiritual confusion of the Ninevites is on full display in the person of Jesus. You might remember in the text, he wept over Jerusalem and said, I long to gather you like a mother hen. And then he cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. By nature and by choice, you and I rebel against a holy God. He has every right to hold us accountable for our sin. And we see in the New Testament how God's justice is satisfied on the cross. His love is made manifest in Jesus. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And apart from the rescuing work of God, like Jonah and like Nineveh, you and I will perish in our sin. But in Christ, we are made righteous. John writes that we love because he first loved us. We know the rest of the story. And because we are loved, because we are in Christ, you and I are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And and we don't have to be like Jonah angry at the grace that's extended to our enemies because like them so too were you and i at one point enemies of god in our sin and like us they can be made righteous through jesus brothers and sisters this is profoundly good news The Bible tells us that one day there will come a time when people from every nation, every tribe, every people group will be praising God together, even the Ninevites. And hopefully some of those people that you had in mind earlier in this message. Revelation 7, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. They were worshiping Jesus. Those who were once enemies distant from God had been brought near. In recent days, I've grown to really appreciate the work of Arthur Brooks. His talk on the Trinity Forum and the resources he's offered on his website and other places are helping me understand how this message of love for enemies might be played out in real time here. His current research shows that in our country, we're experiencing divisions similar to that of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. These last few years have revealed tremendous challenges And I want to invite you to pause and reflect. Brooke's diagnosis is that we've embraced a culture of contempt. Rather than simply being angry and disagreeing with someone's ideas, many of us find ourselves angry and adding to it this level of disgust. You're just offensive for even having the idea. And contempt leads us to believe that you disgust me and you're not even worth me caring about. We begin to believe that there's an other, and that that other is not worth caring about. It shows up in our sarcasm, in our sneering, our eye-rolling, and it's always about the other. But the path of Jesus offers us a better way. As we have been loved, so too we can love another. Brooks reminds us that we're never gonna insult someone into agreeing with us. It doesn't work. When we assume the worst about others, it doesn't help us appreciate the shared humanity that we all live in. And he doesn't advocate for us to agree on everything. In fact, he thinks that's crazy. It's just that we would see each other as created in the image of God and worthy of respect. The sin of Jonah was a sin of contempt. It was Aquinas who said, we must love them both, those whose opinions we share and those whose opinions we reject. For both have labored in the search for truth and both have helped us in finding it. Nineveh stands as an example for us of how we might turn to God. Jonah stands as the anti-hero of what could happen to our hearts if we're not oriented to the mercy and grace of God. The sin of Jonah is the sin of our day, the sin of contempt for the other, believing they're not even worthy of our concern. I mentioned Pastor Tim Mackey. I've so appreciated his teaching, and I want to make sure he gets all the credit for any of his good ideas. In one of his messages about Jonah, he offered an exercise that I think might be helpful for you, as it was for me. But I want to warn you, I don't think you should do this exercise apart from prayer, because in prayer, I think God will help us to see our hearts. And just like he opened up it allowed us to see into Jonah's heart so too he can open our hearts to love. Pastor Mackey says that one of the ways you can grow in your love for enemy is to simply make a list of all the things you can't stand about them. Take out a sheet of paper and start writing. I hate how that person's always late to my meeting. Man, that was really frustrating that that guy had to get his way and that cost me more money. How could she use her position of authority just to make my life miserable? <laughs> you know that group. That group will never waste a crisis to get their message out, will they? Why does that guy always have to get in the last word? Those people, those people over there, those other—they just use their religion to abuse and, and to harm the weak. That guy's a jerk. He's always demanding. And I think what will happen to you as it happened to Pastor Mackie and it happens to me is as you look into the list of everything you don't like about that other person, if you're being honest, you start to see yourself. You ever been late to a meeting? You ever misused your tongue? You ever taken advantage of the authority that you have positionally just to prove that it's your job and you can do it? The speck in the eye of your enemy reveals often a log in our own eyes. And this, my friends, is an invitation to a better way. If we were to see each other as we really are, created in the image of God, things can change. And Jonah 4 reminds us that it doesn't have to be this way. Because our God is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He does not change. And so I want to invite you to do something this week. Will you sincerely ask the Lord to help you display love to someone who is difficult for you to love? Invite Him that if the sin of Jonah of contempt has become the sin of your heart, that He would begin to open your heart to the grace and mercy and forgiveness that's found in Jesus to be put on display for others. As we consider the rest of the story, let's remember these words from Jesus, from Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the greater Jonah, who is Jesus. Thank you for chapter four, a hard passage. Lord, it's hard because it reveals the hardness of our heart that so easily happens. Father, help us as we read this to decontaminate and, Lord, to look to you Having experienced your mercy and your grace, God, forgive us for being slow to extend that to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God, as we continue to lift our hearts to you in word and in song.